Each generation through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus provides a trove of lessons for the generations that follow them. We advance by building on the work of those who have gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gen Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. Imagine it as a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told for us by us. You're listening to Gen Activist. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the pod, everyone. We're so excited that you're listening in. Today, we have a great guest. We have Donna Carter, who is a renowned architect, but not just that. She's a black woman architect, which is very, very rare in the United States, and she's just done such amazing work. We have such a rich conversation with her about the power of community and design and architecture, and I just loved it. It literally felt like sitting on a Sunday afternoon talking to my aunt. And so I hope that you enjoy it. You know, sometimes when an episode is over, the conversation just keeps going. It's too good. And sometimes we will push record because we think there's some richness there that maybe we should capture. And that's what happened here. So you're going to first listen into kind of that after conversation that we had with Miss Carter, G-Mom in Virginia, and we were just talking about something unrelated to architecture. We were talking about education and the ways that we think today's issues um, intersect with our education system. So listen here to that first, and then right after that, you will hear our official, official conversation with Miss Carter. Check it out. Education, and obviously here in Texas, we're under attack right now mm-hmm. with with education, and we're mm-hmm. and and what it's showing me is we have we're seeing the fruit of probably two generations of poor education. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I'm writing about that right now. Uh, we can lay much of this at the feet of education. And so not only did Rogers talk about the miseducation of the Negro, we have miseducated white children. Right, yes, yes, most definitely. And so the, the, the decisions that are being made now, it is very clear that the decision makers are not capable of critical thinking. I mean, Absolutely. They, That's the they, key. Can't, they can barely pose a problem, That's let right. alone come up That's with right. the steps to solutions or possible solutions yeah. or alternatives. And they don't want to come out of the cave, you know, yep. like those caves. Well, they want to stay. And if you try to bring them light, they don't want the light. Yes. They I want to they stay. They put sunglasses in the cave. on. Yeah. That's yeah, right. I, it's um, but 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 that's frightening because and yes. you know, and and we talk about you know the global shifts and we talk about all the manufacturing got pushed out and I, but if you think about, in a sense, why that happened, we did have a period where we taught critical thinking, where we taught absolutely, um, we taught options, we taught alternatives, we taught working through those. And what that did was we had intellectual property that became valuable. That's why but I can't retire. <laughs> we've lost that. We've, and, yes. and we've lost that edge. We've lost the global part of the, you know, the global side of it. Yeah. Um, we can't afford what we want. Yeah. Um, and we can almost not afford what we need. So that's that's why I can't retire. I have to keep this fight up. I have to fight for I have to fight for it. Fight for it. Uh, because you know, that's the Anyway, I just love so many people who have shed light in my life. I think of Fred Lynch does this, you know, nothing's won without struggle. The struggle continues. The struggle does, the struggle definitely continues. We're tired of struggling, G-Mom. I know. That's our next episode. I'm in a pessimistic place too, Miss Carter. (laughs) Not tired of struggling. We'll talk about that. I have some I'm only 36. I'm tired. Find (laughs) joy in the struggle. (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I, that, now that's my, a title. In my forties, I decided, oh, this is about struggle. Okay, God, help me find joy in the struggle. Struggle. Okay, all right. That'll be my new mantra. Can we find joy in the joy? 
Well, yeah, there are others too. There are others too, but that's part of it. But you know, you know, that's actually that's another podcast. I mean, the whole idea that we have to struggle. Hello, walls. Is <laughs> you know, I'm 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 becoming fighting mad about it. Me too. We should be Absolutely. able to sit back and just Smile. Oh yes. Goodness. But the old woman said, my feet is tired, <laughs> but my soul is rested. When I know, and you know, and you're going to have living structures, I'm going to have people who say, because of the struggle, because of your struggle, I can be. And if we don't have that hope, we are lost. But why is it? I'm going to have to yep. stop. Say, have to go we, we're not going to solve this today. <laughs> Why do our people not get the chance to rest, to enter our rest, this earth side? Yes. Because it's not that way for everybody. I don't know the answer, but I know one thing. If I rest too long, we're going to be in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's that's the mom, you don't rest. (laughs) Yeah. We need your energy. That's for sure. If I rest too long, she means the eight hours of sleep. Completely right. Yeah. She wakes up at four. She doesn't. Uh, no, no, not me. Uh-uh. No, no I'm, I'm, I'm good. I can, I can do my eight hours. In her defense, she goes to bed at like eight. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I feel as if I've just been talking to community, the mm-hmm. folks I know, to family who understand each other and embrace each other and encourage each other. And it's just been a delight to speak with you. Well, G-Mom is my grand. I don't, I don't have any living grandma's parents. And so G-Mom is uh, my grandmother. I'm trying to make my way into the Christmas card. Right. That's when it's official. (laughs) I feel good to be adopted. Thank you. (laughs) Chin activist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Worse. So excited today to invite Donna Carter into our virtual living room uh, of season two of Gen Activists. Um, it is always such a treat to invite friends into the space, folks that we know whose work we've come into contact with. And so just to start us off, Donna, you know, when we think about design and architecture, um, it's such a pivotal part of our lives. And yet if it's not your practice, you may not actually think about it on a daily basis. But it is truly what fosters connection. It supports the stories we build. Um, And yet it's such a nuanced art form, right? It is art, it is art, it is science, it is engineering. Um, And as I reflect on my life and in conversation with G-Mom and Megan, we know that we don't see people that look like us, particularly women that look like us in this field. And so we wondered if you could just start us off by telling us a little bit about What are your first memories about design and what it did for you as an individual or your family? Um, Were you ever inspired by your childhood home and kind of what brought you into this particular practice? I'm really kind of a, I'm I'm a middle middle person. Um, As I said, both my parents were um, educated. So I'm a second generation college educated um, young African-American woman who was always told you can do anything you put your mind to, as long as you're better than an attorney, better than a teacher, as long as you get your, get a profession. But I grew up really in that great, my parents, um, were sort of in their, their middle years in that really formative period where they felt integration held the key that, if we can, if we can feel allowed access to and be treated fairly, we will rise to our to our mark. And took everyone at their word for that. So it was that time when we also. So they were part of core. They were part of SNCC. My father was an attorney, so his frat brothers were, uh, you know, people like Senator Brooke, um, uh, Stokely Carmichael Sr. Um, these were people that he, he interacted with on um, a daily basis. He wrote letters to Thurgood Marshall. 
about, I mean, just because he was an attorney and he was going through things. And so he would, they would write letters. So um, that kind of informed um, what I thought the world should be. Mm. But it was also a time of struggle. It was a time when we, I lived 20 miles outside of Boston. It might as well have been on Mars. You know, you could not, you know, there was no transportation into the city. It was very much removed from the, the sort of uh, very, the historic African-American middle-class uh, Boston families. It was also removed from, um, you know, the, the working class and the very poor areas. Mm. You know, my, my parents literally had, you know, I was part of sit-ins to buy the house that we ultimately bought. And in fact, they wouldn't sell it to, to us. So mm-hmm. a white family from a church bought the house and then sold it to my dad for a dollar. So wow. there were straw men. So I, but I remember getting dressed up in, you know, pigtails and bows, <laughs> you know, with my very pressed hair and long braids down to here with, mm-hmm. the, with the, the, the big ribbons. Um, everything pressed and neat going in and saying we wanted to see that house and then when they wouldn't show it to us sitting there and sitting there for hours until someone would acknowledge that we were there or or going to be served. And Donna do you think you know when you reflect on being in those spaces Mm. what a powerful story and that you have such vivid memories around it, I think is really, really cool. You know, I think mm-hmm. back in the 1990s, I've told this story before, we're pretty sure we um, integrated a neighborhood in central Austin. Right. And the deed on my parents' house still said that no Negro could live there. But for you to have such formative memories about what it was like to sit there and watch your parents, some ways have to perform in order to be acknowledged as, you know, um, adequate buyers, um, I think is really interesting. And so I, I wonder how those moments kind of retrospectively, you now think about um, the power in the work that you do now, which is reclaiming spaces and, and building spaces that historically were not open to your family and to you. And how has that maybe informed your work today? How it has really informed it is the fact that spaces that we do have, I mean, I feel so incredible. My eyes are always kind of you know, blown wide open here in Texas because in, in communities like Texas or in states like Texas, there's a tradition where African-Americans own land. African-Americans built their own houses. Um, they lived in their own communities and they actually reclaimed space They carved out space often hidden. And so for me, coming from New England, you know, old, older than the revolution, having to, thinking that I was a part of it, but then being shown on every day, daily basis that I wasn't a part of it. One of the things when I moved down here, oh, you have this. You can say that your great-grandfather built that you should keep it. There is value in that. There is value in seeing the marks that his acts made. There are value in knowing where that wood came from. And that's often a hard story. It's often something that, you know, and and my parents, my mother especially was an incredibly strong person, but in some ways, they were so focused on becoming part of the mainstream, part of getting to the point where you weren't noticed. And so there's always this rub about, do I want to be noticed? Do I want to be absolutely acknowledged and somehow even lifted up? Or do I really just want to be me? Oh, that's a powerful question. That, you know, that's the hard one. You raise some really important issues here, and the word paradox comes to mind. Two words, paradox and iterative. So when you describe, I'm 20 years prior to you. I grew up in the 50s and 60s, but mainly 50s. Um, 
So there's this paradox with us as people, because I hear your story, and so much of it is my story. And yet, we're still having to relive it. Uh, and the, 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 the dilemma of whether to be in the group, be like someone, or be ourselves, is always something we're dealing with. So from my perspective, I come from a family of lots of firsts and lots of teachers and social workers and all of those things. Uh, and yet they had, and they were a part of that movement that you're talking mm -hmm. about. But then they had second guesses, uh, second thoughts about it. How, how useful or in what ways was integration and in what ways did it destroy some of who we are? That we had to be something else in order to be accepted. And I think we still live with that. We still live with that. So uh, my aunt who was taught me at fourth grade, it's funny. And I went, my parents lived in this community that was integrated except the railroad tracks kind of so, but the school was integrated. And when my parents moved to the community, my second brother was, went to school there. He was, both of my brothers are, are older than I. And um, he experienced such psychological damage in this school where he was, but not wanted. Mm -hmm. And so my parents vowed that I wouldn't go to that school. So my aunt, taught in West End in Cincinnati, where only Black teachers could teach. Mm -hmm. And I went to Harriet Beecher Stowe School, <laughs> where all the teachers were Black. And I, and I rode with her. So you talk about reverse busing. I rode with her in her little Nash car every day <laughs> to Harriet Beecher Stowe School, where the principal, where I was so loved and mm -hmm. I was so... Um, embraced and where I was made to feel you're so smart and uh, which had been a very difficult and opposite experience of my brother. So this dilemma is always there. And a kind of a bellwether of that is at sixth grade in Cincinnati, you test to go into this mm -hmm. college prep elitist high school. I have second thoughts about that now too. But the point being, I grew up with, with uh, children my age in our community who I know were as smart as I was or smarter, but because they had to come through that sixth grade white so-called integrated school, none of them made it to Walnut right. Hills. Right. And when I got to Walnut Hills, the only black people I saw, children I saw, were who had gone to these segregated black schools where these teachers say, oh yeah, you're gonna learn and you're gonna do this and that and, and, and failure is not acceptable here. We're here to prevent you. So I think we keep finding ourselves in, still in this dilemma. Um, it's very much, a, it's also funny because my family's from Cincinnati. Oh, I school because <laughs> my, my cousin, who's actually a sort of a second or a third cousin mm -hmm. of mine, uh, has exactly that same, you know, almost exactly wow. that. Same wow. Oh, that's so, so um, No, and, and it, it, it is a dilemma. It's, um, you know, fast forward and, and, you know, my mother was a teacher. She, uh, when we moved to this white suburb, I mean, 20,000 people max at the time when we moved in, um, literally country, it's Longfellow's Wayside Inn over the river and through the woods. You know, it was established, quote unquote, in 1627 um, as a, its own independent city. Um, but when I went to school, they immediately, you know, they had tracking. And so they tracked oh, yes. me in the lowest, <laughs> lowest track. <laughs> And they did not hardly give me any work at all. And my mother, and so the, I think part of that paradox too is my mother went in tirelessly, every, you know, week after week, you have to move her. She does not belong there. Yes. She does not. And, but she did not tell me that. Mm -hmm. She yes. did not say you're being held back. Mm -hmm. She did not. All, everything she did, she was the wizard behind the green curtain. 
because she wanted me to have this view. And sometimes that's not a real view. So, I mean, I, you know, again, as much as I love her, there was a little bit of a disservice not showing me all of the struggles that she went through on my behalf. Yes, right. You know, it, 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 the, our story in this country is one of struggle. And sometimes we don't know how to struggle because the other side of that was, how dare you create these spaces with superior facilities and superior resources and I'm not in? So there's that dilemma. So, yes, my child's going to go here to school. Mm -hmm. You can't have this. My, the blood and sweat of my ancestors is in that school. Yeah, literally built doors. that. Literally built that. School. That's right. Yes. And, and and then when I think about spaces, I think about family. I think about how people get together. Um, houses. How you know? On the one hand, when I think about architects and houses, I mean that is the you know that's a a first world problem when you talk to your architect about whether you know <laughs> yeah. the back door is going to work this way or how this is going to connect to um, you know your your interstitial outdoor living space before you get to the pool house before you get to the pool. But if you look at the way people live in a space, yeah. and you know there's still pockets. And my daughter lives on a street and and her street has changed a lot in East Dawson, but as soon as I walk around the corner, I can go to places where, you know, people literally, there are people that are on the porch and it, 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 it is somewhat age level. So the older person's up on the porch, the older person's talking down, there's a group of people sitting around, you know, they're yes. the ones that are drinking, maybe playing a little cards, they're mm -hmm. talking, there's a, a yes. relationship back and forth. Absolutely. But those kinds of spaces still need to be accounted for as we design. Yes. yes. And again, the paradox was, or and often is, people have an image about what a house should look like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's you give a kid a, a, a piece of paper and say, draw a house. They have a gable, they've got a chimney, they have some smoke coming out of the, the, the chimney. And that may not really work. But people like you give them permission to think of something different. I, think I try that's so to. That's try. right. <laughs> people like you really just give them permission, freedom to say, there's more. Uh, and and to be imaginative. That's why I think the arts and architecture are so important in our lives. We it's really also um, giving people, what I like to do is just talk about, you know, literally, when you wash dishes, how do you like to wash it? I mean, where, you know, some people do like the dishwasher on the right-hand side. Some people like it on the left. I mean, but part of it is, um, asking people really to think a little bit about how it is they do things. Yeah. And, and if it makes a space that doesn't look like something out of Architectural Digest, that's fine. <laughs> so I think it's more that permission of, and that um, saving, saving the small house that you're comfortable in, just getting that to the point where it's safe Mm -hmm. If it can be more sustainable, if it can be more energy efficient, if it can allow more light in or close light off when you need light to be closed off. Uh, some of those old lessons, if you look at some of the older farmhouses and look at how even out buildings were built around that farmhouse. So part of what I do, as much as I like design and you know, I love you know, really beautiful, crisp spaces, I mean, Virginia has you know, a great eye and you know, I love listening to her talk about space. Um, you know, as a, as a layman, I, I, I'm not sure she really is, but anyway, I, I do love talking about it. Um, part of it is um, really just acknowledging that everyone isn't going to be able to speak about it in those ways, but mm -hmm. it still affects them and it still affects them in a very, real and 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 visceral way yeah uh, I mean you know it's like I, every family reunion I've been to I mean it's you know 
the food comes out kind of in the, in the same containers. It kind of gets put out in the, in the same <laughs> way. But um, there's, there's a joy in that. Mm-hmm. So. I love um, so much of what you both said. I'm just sitting back like listening, uh, chatting, Virginia saying like, let's just let this go. Like, this is great. This conversation is going great. I'm learning um, so much, but also just just thinking about the connections between, you know, really your generation, G-Mom and, and your generation. Um, you know, I think about integration and gentrification and how it is still, um, you know, the impact is still there today. We're still fighting those same battles. And so when, you know, Ms. Carter, when you think about the work that you've done um, for years and the way that you describe even just like validating someone's humanity, right? And, and hearing their stories and bringing that into how you design a place so that people can live in it in a way that is natural to them. And then we, we consider... Um, how the world has not necessarily made space for that and how we're still fighting it today as my baby wakes up. I don't know if y'all heard it, but um, um, I just want to, I just, I just want to know your thoughts on like, how does it feel to still in some ways be fighting the same battles for our generation to be faced with some of the same battles? Um, You know, like, have we really made, made progress? I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I get very, pes- right now I'm in a very pessimistic, somewhat dark space. Um, and I realize that's not healthy. And, um, and, and it's not a good place to be in. But race aside, to see so many people being what I think of as just being cruel. So many people that equate personal freedom with not caring for other people besides themselves, that somehow freedom comes without responsibility. Um, That to me is a very dark place when I think about humanity. Yet, I, I look out and I see that, you know, I mean, first of all, every mother loves their, their child. Every child is beautiful to every mother and that's across the board. The possum thinks that their baby is the prettiest baby in the world. <laughs> and we all know how ugly the possum is. But, you know, I, when I reflect, I mean, so a little, another little piece of my history is I actually went to school in England for a year and or a little more more than a year. And part of that was, again, my mother's feeling, oh, you need to take advantage of any opportunity you possibly get. Mm -hmm. I went to school in England for a year, went to school and it was 1967, 1968, 69, kind of in that 18 month period in there. We had Kent State, we had Jackson State. Mm -hmm. So we saw a country react one way to students being shot at Kent State. And we saw it react a different way or hardly react at all to shootings at Jackson State. We saw people fighting to get out of Vietnam. It was unjust. We were, you know, kind of forcing our, you know, our view, our worldview, our money, everything. In, in, this, in this space that we truly didn't understand. And then we saw, you know, summer of love. I mean, we had hippies saying that we just need to ha- we'll have a great country, we can all get together. Um, everything's gonna be great. So I'm in, I'm in England and I'm looking at the United States and really for the first time probably in my life feeling those folks don't want me. I'm some. I, I don't see myself as part of hardly any of that. Yet, if anyone in England or anyone in France looks at me, they immediately say I'm American. They don't ask if I'm from Africa. 
It's my clothes, it's the way I walk, it's my bearing, it's everything. So I suddenly felt truly like a person without a home, without a homeland, without, I mean, literally tetherless. And, you know, we, we, people now, you know, take look at the flag as a, as a symbol. My deepest, I still don't have an answer to it. Mm-hmm. What is my country? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miss Carter, that is, oh, mm-hmm. I've got chills just thinking about that. So Megan and I have been talking a lot about this concept of what is Black patriotism? And so mm-hmm. this idea of feeling homeless, which is also mm-hmm. the double sort of context that it, as an architect, right, that you literally mm-hmm. have the ability to create homes and spaces. And yet, what is our relationship to those spaces? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about the dichotomy and the paradox, right, of being kind of torn between two, two worlds, right? This opportunity that we were so generously granted by white America, right, to assimilate and acculturate and to perform in a way that felt comfortable, and then to be disruptive and to create our own spaces. And so this idea that you've presented around feeling homeless, I think, on a micro level is what many communities of color are feeling in their neighborhoods. When we think about gentrification, displacement, it's like, so my great grandparents' home is here, their physical location of their house, but all the changes happening around. You know, my grandmother lives in Inglewood and right down the street from the new stadium that just hosted <laughs> the uh, Super Bowl. So I, you know, land in LAX and I go straight to her house, which is like nine minutes away. But now I drive by and I'm like, where am I, right? I don't recognize the streets and the cultural and social fabric of those communities, very much like what's happening in East Austin, which I know a lot of your career has taken place in. And so I wonder in light of that ongoing struggle that we have, how do you define the role of architecture? I had the opportunity to work with a few architecture firms in the last few years around equity and racial justice. And this uh, term of uh, design justice has come up. And one of the values or tenets is this idea of using space to heal. And so I wonder when you think about your career, when you think about the art of architecture, do you consider it to be a tool of healing or storytelling or history? Um, and, and how has it kind of um, evolved throughout your time? It's evolved very much from pro- what I would actually think of as providing basic, is actually providing access to design so that things are done well, so that you can do um, the, the, that you don't, um, you don't make mistakes. Just providing access to that tool that we actually, in a lot of ways, never had. Or if we did, we were always doing it for someone else. We never did it for our own community. We were the laborer out there and we were learning a lot and we could see a lot. It was very difficult to bring those skills back on a larger scale to our community. So that was probably the first place that I was, but I think that it 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 does get bigger. And and um, again, for me, I was talking to someone the other day. Um, I for some reason, and I'm now beginning to think that it's just kind of innate or whatever. I am drawn to um, to, to, to curved and curvilinear spaces very difficult to add on to, very difficult to make very large, but very, very compelling, very, very active when you think about community. <laughs> and when, you know, for me, space is about um, enabling a, a community. And I often think that right now, in this day and time, when we have an issue, if people were to apply kind of, and I have no better words for it, not necessarily, I don't like the terms, but first world kind of technology and first world um, 
access to the raw materials. But if you deploy that and get people engaged in a third world mentality, that will be successful. And no. Oh, I'm sorry. Ahead. No, keep going. It's all right. Sorry. And so part of that is if you think about the, that, what happens in these communities, these, these the, the worlds that are smaller communities that make up the, 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 bigger, the bigger picture, that it's always on a very people-scaled module. Mm -hmm. It may be where you get your water. It may be where you bake your bread. It may be where you send your child to school. But whether, and when you talk about it, it comes down to walking distance. It comes down to how do you get to the fields? How do you get to the schools? How do you get to those things? So if we deploy, whether it's education, whether it's healthcare, whether it's even food, whether it's how we deal with our water, if we did that on that smaller scale, using some of the other things that we have access to, to me, we would be richer. And to me, that's about designing around that smaller scale. Uh -huh. And it's totally antithetical to new urbanist and new everything else. And, you know, if we just have more of it, it'll be cheaper. And we have shown that without policy, without, without actually committing to it being less expensive and accessible for all, it will not I'm really pleased to uh, be able to speak about the renovation and subsequent opening of the John Chase Building on Navasota Street in Austin. And this building to me is, it just represents kind of everything that uh, we've kind of been talking about. And that is a, a space that was built for African-American teachers but also their students. And they had to work together because there was no one advocating for either, either side. And this building was built on the east side and it was a commercial building built by John Chase as, just as he graduated from the University of Texas at Austin as the first graduate of the architecture school. And it's now being, re, it's been reborn and people are now knowing it for the first time. Uh, not for the first time, but they're 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 knowing it uh, for for what it is, and it's something that um, there are actually several other John Chase buildings, and the fact that we can start to recognize him for the design talent, the architectural talent, and the social talent that he was, for me is uh, just absolutely fantastic. Uh you bring up so many things and my brain just keeps moving as you keep talking. Uh, but you bring up the word community. And ironically, this past Friday, I was doing a similar session with my uh, cousin who works for an engineering. Um, they are involved in transportation, the freeways, but also the mass transportation, et cetera. And I mentioned to them that in my consulting, I'm doing a lot of work around building building not in concrete but building the concept of community schools because um, so many of our schools in neighborhoods where black people live have been neglected and uh, school districts offer them this thing well we'll give we'll give a few of you an alternative you can go to this school over here option meanwhile you're leaving behind all of these children who are being denied their first right, which is to have a quality education in their own community. So I was speaking with them about uh, schools. And as you said, when you said, what, whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever the entity is, community means it has to work together. People have to have a sense. And from my perspective, we're talking about children. It's all of these things that have to work together in a way that honor the word that Megan used early, honor the humanity of the people who live there. Uh, and we know how disrupted so many communities were when these freeways went through. And I had staff, when I was a superintendent, 
I had staff who would go back and work in these communities. She said, Sylvia, this isn't, I grew up in this community. This wasn't like this now, but you know, eminent domain, they came and gave people who had a little piece of property, some money. So they moved out and the people left behind were the people who didn't have any capital at all. And so, and then we get blamed. Those people get blamed for circumstances that were manufactured. So that's one thing, but you brought up something else and I've been taking notes while you're talking because you, um, you bring so many things. First of all, my other granddaughter, I have a lot of granddaughters, <laughs> but one of them is gonna be so jealous and she'll have to look at this because she's been taking some classes in design and there's such an ignorance on the part of the people who are teaching her, of the presence of black architects and black designers. And it's like, oh, I didn't know that. And that is such a bother to me when evidence is so clear of what black people have done. And white people have the nerve to say, oh, I didn't know that as if it doesn't exist if they didn't know it. So <laughs> you're a hero in my, you really are yeah. a hero. Tell oh, us how you really feel, G-Mom. G-Mom's like, and white people. No, uh, Ms. Carter, it, that, that's a good segue, though, because I did want to just hear about your experience. There's so few, um, you know, Black architects, Black female architects are even fewer, and, and being one of the few that are licensed, just your experience of practicing in a super white space, um, and also, you know, being a disruptor, having to come in and, and you know, Tell them to make space. It, let me just do one thing. I want to honor your mother. <laughs> okay, that was my last point. Not my last, but it's the last one. Because, um, you know, when um, Virginia talked about my being the first here, first there, you're being first architect. There is something wonderful. It's not like we're in a contest. I want to be the first. But there's something that our ancestors put in us that said, that's a space where I think I can function, I can contribute, I belong. And it was almost like John Henry Clark when he talked finding our places on the map of human geography. It's like you have been reared to say, that's a space that's been restricted to me. But doggone it, my mama thinks I belong wherever I want to be. And so there was a courage that she built in you that oh, said, absolutely. it might be restricted. And I, I attribute so much of that to my ancestors to say, some place to be somebody that belongs to you and you can enter it. And I don't care if there's nobody there like me, but first I'm going in. So I right. just wanted to- And, and my, my mother was a tour de force. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I just have, I mean, she survived cancer three times starting at a very early age. She married, she and my father were married for 53 years before he passed away. And he came, so he's the one from Cincinnati. He came from a very large family. There were 16 kids in the family, 14 living into maturity. And his parents were very much, they were entrepreneurs, but not into education. And my father wanted an education. He left home. Mm -hmm. So he actually estranged himself from his family for many, many years. Met my mother. My mother just kind of picked him up and said, <laughs> you can do it. You know, I mean, she was kind of brutal about it. But really, you know, and, and he did. And you know that's when he decided he was going to be a lawyer, and he did that all on his own. So I mean, but I, yeah, thank you for shouting because she, she, she was something else. I'm sorry, Megan. I just had to say that. I had to tell <laughs> Mama. Yes. Yeah. Her child. Oh no, you're good. Too. That's what editing's for. Oh, <laughs> you're fine. We'll chop you it up. Cannot, you cannot edit that out. No, it'll be in. We'll just change the order. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That is. Um, but this whole idea, so that's the other thing. It was really like, yes, you can be there, but that just means you have to work and you have to work at what you're going to do. And I remember going into my first, you know, first job 
and had a little contest among the three designers, you know, I'm going to win that. I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to do my design. I'm going to sit there. And I did. Um, but all while I'm doing this, I'm not thinking of myself as a first. I'm not thinking. I had probably been practicing 15 years before I realized there were less than 300 of us at that time that were registered African-American women architects. When I think of 300 in this big country, I, I mean, it just, I'll be honest, it, it was a space I could not, um, I actually, I could not fathom. I, I could not, I could not function because I didn't, and I still don't like relying or somehow falling back on, quite honestly, all of these adjectives. At some point, again, I get back to that thing. At some point, I want to be me. And I, you know, I want a little baby in your arms. If, you know, if, if they want to be a forest ranger or go out and count bugs in the middle of nowhere, that that is something that that child can do. That's so beautiful. Um, as you speak about your mother and your parents and you tell through your lived experience, the stories of your family and generations before, I think it brings us back to the foundational piece of what Rosa Rebellion is about and why we created this podcast, which is storytelling, which is documenting what we know to be widely untold stories, widely undocumented stories. And I know so much of your work has been connected to cultural and historic preservation. Um, and so, People may not realize it, but architecture is a tool of storytelling. And I wonder if you could kind of share with us maybe your favorite projects that you've worked on or ones that stick out to you um, and its connection to doing what you just shared, which is um, helping affirm people's humanity, but also tell and document stories that maybe we otherwise wouldn't hear. So are there any projects um, past or present that just really put a smile on your face when you think about them. So there, there are probably three or four projects. One is one I'm working on and will probably work on until I die. Um, but I'm working with a family um, that's somewhat dispersed now, but they um, had family property out in Newton County in Texas. And so it's actually the remnants of an old Friedman's community. And their family is it's out. I mean, you might as well just call it West Louisiana. I mean, it is so far in East <laughs> Texas. They have managed to maintain seven acres. They have a 1930s house on it that their great grandfather built. Mm -hmm. uh, they have other structures, including crib, uh, you know, like a, a barn crib, um, some storage. They have chicken coops. They there's archaeology on the property. And so helping that, and the family now is restoring it themselves. So they've got, you know, Uncle Harold, you know, who's 80, is now working with the 40-year-olds who then bring their kids. And so the, the little kids, they're the ones that bring out the lunch meat sandwiches, make sandwiches for everybody that's working. Kids that are a little older sort through the wood and sort through the nails. Um, and then as they get older, they actually start building it. So just working with that family, keeping that legacy, the stories, um, it's just been, it, I mean, it's just wonderful. And then I've, I've actually just said, I now have to be part of their family. They've got to adopt me. <laughs> so that's kind of a running joke with that. So that's, that's one piece. Another one is really different. It was um, not, I didn't have, Carte blanche on my on my um, uh, on, on you know the amount of money I had to, to to do the project, but it was the restoration of the Texas and Pacific um, Railroad Station in Fort Worth, and that's a building that was built after the um, um, the the, uh, the downfall in the 1930s after the Depression. 
and it was built in great um, sort of Art Deco style. I mean, it was gilding of, I mean, all kinds of gilding from aluminum to brass to, to gold, um, different colors. But it also was a story of the time. So there was the colored ladies waiting room. There were colored mm -hmm. drinking fountains. Wow. The drinking fountains, by the time I got there, had been taken out, but they had, you know, the pictures showed black drinking fountains for coloreds and white drinking fountains for whites. Uh, and so the issue for me as the restoration architect, do you hide that? Do you ask them to interpret that? Mm. On the drawings, do you, you know, obviously we had waiting room one, waiting room two, but is there somewhere that acknowledges that at one point this was the mm -hmm. colored ladies waiting room? Mm -hmm. So that was always an interesting, and, and I, I am of the opinion that you don't hide those things, that you actually start to tell that story and be able to point to little kids and saying that's, you know, we, we have come further, we've advanced. But this is why this is important to me. This is why these are the stories that we want to we want to be telling. So those two, and and I've then I've done you know schools and doing schools and just the spaces for kids and <laughs> you know sometimes being at odds with administration because they're so into their theory. And so, you know, one year we had classrooms that had to all work, you know, work on a pod. Next year we had to have classrooms that had to, <laughs> to, uh, to not be on the pod. And then now we have classrooms that are along this sort of main street with little pods and places for, for kids to, to, get, to get stuck. And then the final one, which isn't complete yet, and when it is complete, also, all it will do is speak to the one thing that I think that architecture, art, um, any kind of art, literature, whatever should do, is to make people think and to start conversations. And this one is actually a utility, um, it's a substation downtown, and substations have to have big fences and walls around them. In this case, we worked with, the neighborhood actually just wanted it covered. They, if they could have put a huge, um, you know, cake cover on top of it, that's what they would have done so they wouldn't see where their electricity comes from. Uh, but we have a metal wall that goes all the way around for safety, but we've also designed parametric plastic fins. So they change shape as you walk around um, this facility. And it's in a downtown area. It is hiding a substation. It is, you know, has to be kind of off the grid, heavily defensible from attack and all kinds of things. And so it's probably going to elicit a conversation. Oh, is this a border wall downtown? Is this a piece of art? Is this good architecture, bad architecture? So, you know, I'm, you know, only time will tell, but I think it'll be, it'll probably be an interesting discussion as people see it unfold. Because um, it's also going to be kind of bright orangey brown and blue fins. So I don't think you're going to miss it. You know, you, this conversation has been so good. You, there's so much history just in your bones um, that I have just enjoyed and so so much relatability. You're talking about the family in Newton, Texas. And I always talk about my family had the land, the house that I grew up in when I was little was my great grandmother's house in Tyler, Texas mm. um, on nine acres. And so um, it's it's just a different thing. There's so much history in that soil. Um, and so I can imagine what that's like to go out there and work with that, work with that family. Um, and then to your point about dishwasher, the dishwasher <laughs> goes on the right <laughs> and the toilet paper goes go over, down. not under. Right, right. That is a subtle fact. No, <laughs> so, um, right. but I so, I so enjoyed this conversation. There's so many things that's like G-Mom said, her brain was moving. I wrote so many notes. And I wanted to touch so many things that I know we don't have time for, um, but it's such a treat to talk with you um, and to hear your journey and to really um, 
talk with someone who understands that designing spaces, you know, it's really about people, you know, it's really about making space for people to live and be affirmed and, and not, um, you know, just about capitalism and making the highest dollar. So, um, (laughs) no, it's, it's, we've got to, and that's what the majority doesn't understand by marginalizing us they have made their lives so much more complicated, so much more unsafe. And they've missed so much. And, yeah. and you know, I don't even care if they miss it. I just, you know, <laughs> but you're true. But I mean, it's like, they're, they're doing some really dumb stuff. <laughs> and, um, and, and unfortunately, we're pay- we are paying the price. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and, um, and and they are. I mean, if you think about, I mean, so again, just getting back to the house. When I and you know, East Austin right now, <laughs> there there are places that you wouldn't. You could be driving in Dallas. You could be driving anywhere, USA. Yeah. You know, I can remember you walk around and just, you know, when it starts to a little bit cool off and people come outside and people are talking back and forth, kids are running up and down. And that is a type of living that is so life affirming. And it is so much of who and what we are, and for some reason, scares the bejesus out of everybody else. I, I just have to say, when you talk about that porch, I have these memories of my husband's mother who held court on her front porch in her rocking chair. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the neighborhood paid, passed by, and paid respects to Miss Ruby. Right. And, um, and that she was the glue in that community. So when she passed, there was just a long line of people coming to her funeral. And among them were the neighborhood alcoholics, were <laughs> the, uh, uh, the little bangdangers or whatever you call yeah. them, the preachers, the lawyers, the doctors. She, she was like a glue to that community. That front porch was where she held court. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That front, I'm thinking about my, my cousin next door, Douglas May, uh, and she would put on some good jazz or blues and come out to the front porch and she'd be doing her arms like this and dancing. And, and before you know it, like all of us are outside having a party, communing, you know, really communing. And it's, it makes me sad because it's really hard to find that now. And I feel like my children, you know, might not experience that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's such a, formative part of who I am and why I value community the way I do. I think just that symbol that y'all are all speaking of, right, which is the porch, which is um, whether it's holding court or being the space of sharing the the, the street tea, you know, tell, mm-hmm. giving the 411 on what's happening on the street, right? I think what we also lose out on, again, is the passing of stories by generations, right? Mm -hmm. Because we don't have those interactions. And so I think what's so beautiful, um, Ms. Carter, as we reflect on the incredible work you're still doing is that you sit at that intersection of being a storyteller, being a preservationist, right? But also investing, you know, here we are recording this episode during the very last week of Black History Month. And what I found so profound in this year is so many people challenging us that as we honor and respect our history, that we also invest in our future. And so your work is this bridging of respecting and honoring our stories and our contributions to the landscape of our cities and this country, but it's also honoring and investing in what does, what is the future of, what does Black future look like? And I think that's the testament of your work is that it is about our future as Black people in this country. 
So my last comment when I end with you, because I don't want to end this conversation. <laughs> However, there's a, there was a play, which you may remember on Broadway, called No Place to Be Somebody. Mm-hmm. What I see in you is what I vow to be as a principal, a superintendent, that I want this place to be some place to be somebody for every person. And that's, it, it feels like that's what you're building. Yes. Oh, well, thank you. 